Welcome to The Ledge. My name is Chris Harper, and I'll be your host every week. Every Tuesday, I will interview an artist, developer, or creative mind from the Web3 space. I'll be getting up close and personal with my guests as we explore the emerging crypto art and NFT scene. It is my feeling, along with many others, that we are in a digital renaissance. The emergence of blockchain technology has revolutionized the way we look at ownership, provenance, and digital assets. It is my goal as your host to help shed light on these complex subjects, and even more so, the individuals behind it all who are carving out their place in history here on the ledge of Web3. This is Chris Harper. This afternoon, I'm interviewing Eric Rubens. Eric's a photographer based out of Southern California. We met at NFT NYC earlier this year. Your photographs are amazing. You're an artist in the NFT and digital space, and I'm just really honored to have you on my show today. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great uh, connecting both in person and uh, online in different kind of projects we're in. So yeah, I'm excited to chat today. Yeah, that's really cool, man. We're in a couple of um, Discord groups together. You're in the Admit One group with me, and then you have your own Discord called Collective Strangers, which was an NFT project you dropped. Um, So it's pretty cool to like interact with you online. And then, you know, now we get an opportunity to look at each other face to face and get to know each other a little better. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. It's been really fun. I'm kind of just exploring all the different avenues that this space offers, whether it's, you know, pursuing your own individualistic art journey or launching a project or being a part of another project. There's just so many ways to kind of be a participant in Web3, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely my same thoughts. This podcast is really, I, I wanted it to be kind of like, if you remember the documentary show called In the Actor Studio with James Lipton, where he just gets really personal with people and gets to know people a little bit more in depth. That's kind of the style of this podcast. My hope is to get to know more about you. And then in turn, hopefully that helps you connect with your with your audience, which hopefully helps you connect with people who may buy and appreciate your art. So with that, I'm just going to dive in. Can you tell me your name? How old are you? Where you're from? Where you grew up? You know, where your parents live? That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, My name's Eric Rubens. I'm 35. I grew up in San Diego and I live about an hour north in Orange County, um, San Clemente area right now. Uh, I do travel a good amount for work uh, for photography projects around the world. So I'm probably away from home more than I actually am home. But when I am home, I, I just love exploring the coastline here. I do a lot of photography on the local beaches. I love to go surf, um, have fun. Um, most of my family's down in San Diego, so I go down to San Diego a good amount as well. Um, but yeah, mainly spend most of my time in San Diego, Orange County. Where did you grow up? Where did you grow up as a kid? Grew up in San Diego, um, in La Jolla Pacific Beach area. I uh, ended up going to La Jolla High School, and then I went to UCSD for college, where I, I played number one on the tennis team. I was All-American and won a national championship in college tennis, and I did electrical engineering. Um, so I followed the engineering kind of route for six, seven years before I got into art. Is that your education background in engineering? Yeah, electrical engineering. I got my bachelor's degree in that. And then I worked um, for Northrop Grumman, which is a defense contractor. So I built satellite systems for fighter jets and drones for for seven years uh, before I took the leap full time into photography. How do you do that? How do you go? How do you go? I'm an electrical engineer building drones for the military to wait. I want to be an artist. How does that happen? 
Well, I think I, I got used to switching to a completely different industry the first time when I went from, you know, tennis and sports to engineering. So I kind of, uh, I kind of accepted that, you know, the, the thing that I had pursued a long time maybe wasn't going to work out. So I kind of followed a different path. And so I think that was a little bit easier, at least to kind of know that there's other other areas of life that you can explore if you're passionate, you know, it's not, I wasn't afraid to potentially try something new. Um, at the same time, it did, it did take a long time to kind of ramp up to where I was comfortable stepping away from engineering, I guess, to take it all back. Um, when I started off with my engineering job, I always thought I would be an engineer. There was no vision to be a photographer at that point in time. I hadn't picked up a camera yet. And I remember the first couple of years I was extremely driven in engineering. I love being on a team. I love, you know, envisioning a product, seeing it come to fruition, you know, and kind of working with a bunch of other engineers to make that happen. So I do love that kind of team element and, and being intellectually stimulated and the mental challenges that come with that. And I think that I guess the first thing that I kind of remember when I, when I first started getting interested in something else was I was just really tired that my entire day was sitting behind a computer um, designing stuff. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like I've already been at this company for like three, four years. And like, it just seemed like the weeks and the months were flying by. And that was, that was a little scary to me. So I, I was remember I challenged myself to go do something after work that was for myself, that wasn't related to working or anything like that. So for me, that was driving to the beach in La Jolla and I would either go for a run at sunset. I would take a photo of the sunset or I would go surf. Right and on. that to me was ending the day on my own terms. And that was a way to, I guess, kind of take back the day. So it didn't feel like I had just worked for someone else. I at least did something for myself as well. So I got really lucky with the timing of it in the sense that this was right when Instagram came out. And so I was taking iPhone sunset photos in La Jolla, which is a, a beautiful place. I was sharing them and I had this kind of budding platform that was perfect for kind of this growing passion of mine. And there was no vision for it to turn into anything or that if I took it seriously for three or four years, it could you know turn into a career like that. That seed wasn't even planted because there were no jobs there were no companies spending any resources on social media at that time, right? There were no agencies. There was no, no vision for how I could monetize an audience, I guess. No, back in the beginning, it, so. nobody was really an influencer except for like celebrities, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I remember just in the early days, like I was getting all these followers just because I was really active. I was sharing, you know, beach sunsets. I, I was really engaged with other locals or I, I remember the coolest thing was like people from Spain or Germany or France would comment and be like, Oh, I went to San Diego 10 years ago. It's so cool to, to have this memory. And so that was kind of, I guess, the thing that sparked me to continue to go every single day, even though I was making $0, I was just getting followers. And, and for me, followers at that point in time was a cool opportunity for me to share San Diego with other people in the world. It wasn't like followers nowadays where it's like, okay, cool. I can monetize this and I'm growing an audience. Like it wasn't that at all. It was just so different. It's, it's really hard to describe because all the platforms nowadays have become so monetized. Yeah. Another way to think of it is that, you know, a follower equates to another appreciator of the art that you're creating. It's somebody else, yeah. another set of eyeballs on what you're doing. Totally. And it was just an opportunity to connect with more people in the world. And I've always been, I guess, someone who really appreciates meeting new people, like on my travels or connecting with other people locally or networking, you know, when it comes to web two, web three, it doesn't really matter. I, just, I really find a lot of joy in, in just talking to people and hearing people's stories. So I think that was like a big root in my passion very early on was it just sharing photos every day, talking to people about their photos they were sharing every day, talking about traveling. Because um, at that point in time, I really hadn't traveled that much. So it was really cool for me to connect with people from other, you know, coastal towns around the world. And they'd be like, oh, this looks like, you know, South Africa, Cape Town where I live. And I'd be like, oh, I've never been there. Maybe I'll go check it out someday. So that was kind of how it all started for me. It was just 
sharing my uh, my local beaches every day for years and years with with never a thought of it turning into anything. What what year did you, did you start posting stuff on Instagram? Do you remember when that was? 2011. Yeah, that was really at the very beginning. Yeah, it was very early. Um, and so I remember I, I got to like 60, 70,000 followers, which was a lot back then. And I had my first kind of, I guess, breakthrough moment. I mean, I can't really point to one thing where it just like everything changed for me because it's just been slow and steady growth for for over a decade now. But I, I would say like the one moment I had where I started taking things more seriously was I got um, an invite to Jordan, the country. Um, they did their first ever press trip for social media back in 20, it's probably 2015. And at the end of that trip, I got to have dinner with Queen Rania. And to me, that was, I remember it was like the aha moment, the classic aha moment where you go home and you're just like, oh my gosh, I think this could actually maybe turn into something bigger than I had envisioned. So I I started taking it more seriously. I got like a nicer camera. I started traveling a little bit more with other photographers and networking with like other companies. And yeah, I would say like point to that one moment is when things started to I guess probably escalate a little bit quicker. Yeah, that's wild. What do your parents do? My dad is um my my parents are both bio majors. So my dad was a, a teacher for 30 years, wow. um, school teacher, high school and middle school. And then my mom works in a hospital. She's a hematologist, so she analyzes blood uh, for doctors and stuff like do, that. Does anybody in your family, is anybody in your family an artist? No, no. Um, no. I mean my aunt, like illustrated things a little bit, but she had a daycare. So, I mean, no one, no one has ever pursued art full time, which was a big reason why I was discouraged for a long time from doing it. I think, I I don't think anyone in my family understood why I would give up engineering and especially in defense engineering. It's a very, it's a very safe job. Like I I could have had this job for 30 years um, and I, I exceeded all expectations at that job. There wasn't really much expected of me. I mean, I could get my, I was very quick on computers so I could get done all my week's work in like six hours. So I had a very easy, comfortable job that I could have had a career in for, you know, until I retired. And I kind of gave that up because that to me wasn't, wasn't really exciting, right? Like when you're, when you're in your early twenties, mid twenties, you want the feeling of, I guess, having a higher ceiling or not knowing what your five or your 10 year kind of horizon looked like. And I I saw my boss who was 10 or 20 years ahead of me. And I I didn't really aspire to be in that position at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that I could do a lot more. And when you're in a big company, you're held back oftentimes by, you know, you're going to be promoted to an engineer two at this point in time, engineer three at this point in time, then you're going to be a manager, then you're going to be a VP. Like your path is, is pretty determined. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't really like that. So I, I kind of wanted to be in control of my own destiny a little bit more and determine, I guess, where I could go. I feel that Eric, I've lived my life that way. You know, I'm 50 years old right now. And, you know, I never re- I never really went with the norm. I always kind of like, you know, did everything on the outside and, you know, I feel like, it's led to a more creative and fulfilling life as a result of that. So I totally feel that. I I wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned that you challenged yourself to go to the beach and take a picture after work. Was there anything, was what, what inspired you to challenge yourself? Did you listen to a podcast? Did you read something like what, what put that idea into your head? Like I'm going to challenge myself to go do this and start taking photos. I think it was just, it was that early, um, kind of engagement that I got just on sharing that stuff. That was really cool for me. I I thought that it was, I mean, I was very passionate about the place that I grew up. I love San Diego and I think that the beaches there are incredibly beautiful. And and I guess seeing people appreciate the beauty of that, or, or if I could add to that by taking a photo and editing it, putting a spin on it and sharing it in kind of a dramatic or, or vibrant and beautiful way. And people around the world connected with it. 
I thought that that was incredibly cool. And as someone who wasn't, I had no entry, traditional entry into art whatsoever, no background in art. So that was really my first, I guess, taste of really like creating something and getting positive, you know, reinforcement on it and having people connect with it and, and maybe be uplifted by what I was creating. And I remember thinking like, I, I really enjoyed that element of it. So I think even to this day, I know I talk with a lot of artists and and they say like they create for themselves only. And, and I truly think I create probably half for myself, but also half to maybe spark that like uplifting force in somebody else. So I think I truly do create to inspire people to, to brighten a dark day or, or I, I know for a fact that I really enjoy that element when people can connect with the stuff that I put out. Yeah. It sounds like you really do have the heart of a true artist. I want to ask you about your, um, so how do you, how do you teach yourself how to become a photographer? I'm an amateur photographer myself. I've taken pictures for years and years, and I don't consider myself to be very good at it, actually. It's really hard. I mean, technical, technically, photography is difficult, yeah. and especially to produce stuff like you make it look just like, I mean, your stuff's amazing. How did you teach yourself to do that? I think a couple of things. I mean, I think I was very disciplined from my tennis background, right? Of, of just when I decide to put my mind to something or if I want to do something and get better at it, I know the dedication that it takes. and I don't expect overnight results. So, I mean, tennis, I, I played tennis two hours a day for 20, 20 years. I started when I was two and I kind of gave it up when I was like 20, 23. So that's almost over 20 years of doing something nearly every single day for hours before I got to the level I was at. And so I think when I got into photography, I'm sure a lot of people see, you know, photos and they, they expect that they should get there pretty quickly. And I think I probably adopted the opposite mentality where I just knew that I would have to spend years and years doing something and that didn't scare me. Okay. So I think a lot of the times people are probably frightened by just how much time it takes to dedicate to something to become successful at it. And, and that's why people get burned out, you know, when they try to grow a social media audience or grow their brand, you know, they do it for a year or two and they're not, not getting the results that they see other people getting and they probably just get a little over it. But I, I think that that element's never scared me. So I guess diving down into the more technical reasons, I guess I would say the things that helped me improve were outside of just pure time involved doing everything is I think that I was, I definitely would say I was a product of the Instagram generation in the sense that it has a very negative spotlight when it comes to art, but I think it trained my eye into thinking about when someone's mindlessly scrolling a social media feed and they're just going through a picture on the next picture on the next picture i always ask myself what would get them to stop on my photo a little bit longer so is that like leading lines that pull your eyes right into the photo is it vibrant light is it vibrant color is it a, a crazy subject standing in a dramatic spot like drifter shoots like what is what is going to get someone to stop and look at the picture longer and i thought that if i just kind of had a generic picture that didn't stand out composition wise or color wise or light wise, then someone is probably just going to blow right past it. And so I think just learning over time, which photos seem like they receive better engagement or which ones people gravitated to, or even when I create stuff, like which ones I always, I mean, every artist has their own favorite shots of theirs. Like I can tell you instantly, which are my 20 or 30 favorite shots. Sure. And I think they're typically ones that probably have some of the elements that I just described where they, they cause you to stop and look at the photo a little bit longer. Yeah, I certainly relate to that. And my own amateur background in photography, I definitely have like five or 10 photos that I've taken over the years that I can always like pull up and say, these are my favorites. Actually, uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I entered one of them into your uh, photo, your photo thing into Collective Strangers. And uh, awesome. <laughs> it was just a random like iPhone picture that I took. And it's like one of my favorite pictures that I ever took. 
Yeah, I mean, I think people people are quick to kind of dismiss iPhone photography, which I mean, we can get into this later when we talk about our project. But I think that a lot of, a lot of people are a little intimidated to share their work because, I mean, obviously, social media and all this stuff has gotten incredibly competitive, and and the level of photography on Instagram and all these platforms has accelerated so much over the years that I, I think a lot of people, when they're starting off, they they feel like they're not comfortable sharing their work because they don't feel like it's good enough, and I think that that holds up a lot of people from participating in a lot of things, whether it's like art or even like doing a podcast or making YouTube videos, people are really hesitant to start because they just don't think that they're good enough at it. And I think that that's the scariest thing because it holds a lot of people back from just jumping in and and do and having those like long period of time where you are improving that everyone really needs to kind of undergo to get to that next level. I mean, there's no, there's no shortcut to getting very good very quickly, right? You got to put in the time and, and improve and oftentimes improve by trial and error. There's no question. Self-doubt is the biggest hindrance to making forward progress on just about anything. And actually totally, you know, like you said about the podcast, like I I told myself for the longest time, like, I I don't think I would be good at podcasts, you know, and it just kept me from starting it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to ask you, well, you know, and the other thing I wanted to say, you mentioned the iPhone photos, iPhone photos in 2022 are not the same as an iPhone photo in 2011. Those camera technologies have improved, right? I mean, an iPhone iPhone camera right now is a pretty powerful camera in in relation to pretty much any camera, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the technology in mobile photography has improved drastically over the years. I mean, I think that if you want to get really technical, the dynamic range has improved a lot, which means that when you're shooting in in poor lighting, so which is typically when I'm shooting, right? Like sunrise or sunset where a lot of the, the foreground or the subject is darker and then you have a very bright sky, like cheaper cameras or early mobile cameras aren't able to handle that big difference in light, the dynamic range. Sure. But nowadays you're able to see like you can pull incredible detail out of dark parts of a photo and you're also able to recover, you know, blown out parts of a photo just because they're able to capture so much more data in the sensor. What was the first camera you were using when you started shooting those beach pictures in 2011? Do you so remember? the first like actual DSLR camera I got was a Canon T2i. So that was kind of just an entry level Canon camera. And it was, uh, it was perfect for starting off. You know, I was able to buy a couple lenses and it's a great, a great camera for starting off. And then I, I eventually moved on to a Canon 6D, which is the, like an entry level full frame camera. So I was able to capture more of the scene, which as a landscape photographer is pretty important, right? You want to capture as much of the scene as possible oftentimes. Um, and then eventually I, I signed on to Sony's global team in 2017. So I shoot the launch of a lot of their products now and I've, I've been on their team for five years or so. So they have I'm some, all, pre- they have some, Sony they have some pretty incredible camera technology, Sony, huh? Yeah, it's been awesome. We actually have our team retreat. Um, so there's about 150 or 200 of us around the world on Sony's, uh, global collective and pre pandemic, we, we meet once a year in a location. So Sony rents out this entire like camp essentially. We have a creative retreat and they fly in their engineers from Japan. So I get to talk to like the people who are designing the cameras and the lenses through a translator, um, which is pretty cool because it, you know, my background is engineering and technical stuff. So I love the opportunity to kind of go dive back into the, like my former world of designing products and doing all that stuff while also kind of providing the feedback now as a creative and an artist and that kind of stuff. So I feel like I kind of have the ability to be the bridge between maybe two sides of the brain that don't always see eye to eye. Oh, that's really cool. Wow. So you get a lot of, uh, and you get a lot of, I guess you get a lot of like training and stuff. If you're working with Sony, huh? do you get a lot of like education from them on like how to use their, their stuff and their technologies? 
Yeah. I mean, we get a first glimpse at a lot of stuff coming out. So I'll, I'll shoot the launch of a lot of their cameras, lenses, or like their cell phone, the Xperia group. I shoot a lot of stuff for them. Um, I'm signed with Sony audio. So I shoot the launch of a lot of their, their newest head. I think I can show this like, Oh, I'm not on video. So it's good. <laughs> like the newest headphones. Uh -huh. Um, I shoot, I shoot the launch of like a lot of that stuff. So it's, it's, it is cool kind of getting like a little bit of preview of stuff that's coming down the pipeline. And then, yeah, if I have questions on it or wondering how things work, like new features, I, I can have like a good resource at Sony. So yeah, it's really cool to kind of be in the weeds on emerging technology. I've always really appreciated that. I was going to ask you, do you remember the first thing that you ever created in your life that you would call art? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. I, I, I just don't feel like I'm skilled in any other art discipline outside of photography. I can't right draw. Now. I can't paint. I can't play. I can't play an instrument. I can't sing. So I feel like I truly can't really point to anything that I ever created and be like, this was really good art. I mean, I even did like ceramics in high school and I, I don't look back on any of the the bowls that I spun and, and be like, this was incredible. So I had a, I don't know. I had a, no, I had I mean, a conversation. I interviewed uh, Michelle Viljone. She's a photographer in South Africa, yeah. you know, Michelle. And uh, I, yeah. I told her that I think the first thing I ever created as with as art was an ashtray for my mom <laughs> back then, you know, was it, was it wood? No, was an it? ashtray out of like, you know, clay <laughs> in my, oh, in my art class. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did wood woodwork in high school. I remember I made like a really cool chessboard. I think that was probably like the first thing I was ever pretty proud of, but I mean, I was guided through the whole process. So it's not like I innovated it and saw this vision and was able to like execute it. I, I truly don't think I can point back to any art that I was really proud of until I started photography. And I think maybe just because photography, you actually see a lot of engineers and a lot of math people who take up photography as a hobby. And I think it's primarily because it's very numbers driven. It's a lot about symmetry, you know, lines. So I, I think that there's a lot of parallels probably to engineering and technical and like math stuff. So I, I think that's probably why a lot of people gravitate to it. It's probably the, the preferred art form they would take up. I, I do believe that photography appeals to the engineer brain. A lot of people, you're exactly yeah. right. A lot of people I know that have, have an engineering background are really good at, at photography. So you're this super yeah. successful photographer. <clears throat> You've got this huge following. You're getting all these jobs to travel all around the world. What got you, yeah. what got you into the web three universe? Like how did that happen? Oh, good question. Yes. I mean, my first introduction to NFTs was through Dave Krugman, um, another Sony creator. So I've, I've known him and Jay and Silva, who's another another early um, kind of NFT pioneer in the art world. I've known them on Sony's global team for like seven, eight years. So I remember Jan was posting about crypto stuff for years and years and years. And I never really picked up on like what, what he was saying. I, I didn't really like pay attention to it too much. And then Dave formed all ships probably like early 2020, maybe 2019 even. And he started posting NFT stuff on Instagram. And I remember writing him, I think I looked back and it was June, 2020. And I was like, what are NFTs, man? I don't understand. And he was like, oh, it's all happening on Twitter. You got to go over to Twitter. <laughs> and for someone who was 99% of my time invested onto Instagram and had been for a decade almost, I was just like, I don't really want to go spend a bunch of time on another social media platform. I'm already trying to like disconnect from the phone more. <laughs> so I, I held off a little bit. I, I mean, I read a little bit about it and I started hopping into some clubhouse rooms and I wish I picked up on it and like understood it right away in June <laughs> of 2020. Cause right. I would have been early to everything. Sure. Probably would have a bunch of crypto punks and everything. <laughs> but, um, I remember I started taking it seriously, like December, 2020. Um, I was hopping into clubhouse rooms all the time and, I think the biggest appeal to me, if I had to point to one thing, was that 
I felt like I was getting really comfortable on Instagram. I'd been doing it for so long that I was kind of just going through the motions. And of course I was, I was doing really cool jobs and probably on paper, I was at the most successful point of my career. I had had long-term partnerships signed with like Amex and United. I had just signed them to a long-term partnership. I was on Sony's team doing a lot of cool stuff with like Four Seasons, Belmont, Bears, really cool resorts around the world. So I was in a really good spot business-wise, and but I was also in a really like comfortable spot where I didn't feel like I had to go out and like figure out new things. And that kind of scared me. I thought I was getting like a little bit complacent almost. I wasn't learning new things. I was just kind of executing on things that I had known for five or six years. And so when Web3 was coming out, I guess I thought it could potentially be the first opportunity I had ever had in my career to be one of the first people to an emerging industry, right? Like even sure. though I was so early to Instagram, as we talked about, the platform was already had already been developed. My role on the platform was already pretty much defined. I was going to be an artist. I was going to share my work, get a following. The algorithm and all that stuff was already based on other people's terms. Right. Like I was a passive participant in that ecosystem. I didn't really have much of a weight into how it was shaped or molded. Right. So I think that just seeing how early I could potentially be to Web3 and how there wasn't really much built there yet, I thought that it would be a really cool opportunity to potentially pave you know, my own path for the first time ever. And it was kind of that blue ocean feeling where anything you want to do or achieve or go build, you're probably going to be one of the first people to do so. And like I said, that was, I'd never had that opportunity in life before. And, and that probably appealed to the engineer in me who, who had always been kind of yearning to, to build something new or to, to execute, you know, a problem or, or solve a puzzle that hadn't been solved yet. So that was why I started taking it seriously. And I remember my first four or five months, I was just a sponge. I, I just hopped into rooms all the time. I was following all the people everyone else was following. I was trying to read a bunch, really just trying to learn and uh, see how I could participate. And I think it was really intimidating at first because a lot of the initial discussions were about whether photography even has a home with NFTs. Like what, like does photography even belong here? Because there were almost no photographers doing anything. A, I mean, a year ago, Justin, there was nobody. Yeah. Right. Like there was just a couple of guys. Justin had just released like twin flames and it hadn't really picked up yet, but no one was even talking about it. So I didn't even know about twin flames. I mean, right. I couldn't point to anyone and be like, oh, this guy's doing good. You know, I, sh I should go and, you know, do something similar or go share my own work because everyone at the time was like 3D animators or they were on Blender. And I actually downloaded Blender and started going through tutorials because I thought that I had to <laughs> learn this tool in order to participate. I did and that so too. I, I, I'm I not an artist at all. And I downloaded Blender and tried to play with it just to see if I could you, make you did a donut, yeah. donut tutorial. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember for like a good week or two, I was in Blender trying to design stuff and I just didn't, I didn't feel the passion. Like I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't see myself doing this like long-term. I was like, I'm, this isn't my, the art form that I do. This isn't what I create. This isn't me. And like, there are people who've been doing this for as long as I've been doing photography. What makes it, th what makes me think that I'm just going to jump in and instantly be as successful as people who have honed this craft for a decade. So I remember I was a little bit discouraged early on. I was still learning a lot because I thought I could participate in other ways. Uh, maybe I'd jump into some communities or, or be a participant in other ways. But I didn't really know if I could share my art um, until a couple of people kind of jumped in on foundation. I got an invite onto there. I sold a few pieces. And then it kind of just all started accelerating really quick. Like I sold a few pieces on foundation. I launched my collection, Ocean Intersection of 50 Surfers, which was like the 50 kind of best surfing photos that I had taken over my career. And they weren't actually photos of people surfing. They're actually photos of surfers getting in and out of the water. And the reason I did that was because I had a ton of photos of actual surfers on waves as well that I love, but I wanted to stick to a really particular theme because 
the way I describe it is I always really enjoyed the emotion that I saw a surfer as he's going to enter the water and he's about to go surf. They oftentimes are like running in. They're so excited and eager and like they want to get after it. Let's say like oftentimes I would get to the beach with 20, 30 minutes left before sunset after work. And like I would see all the surfers, they just got off work and they're only gonna get 30 minutes and they're just like full energy in. Mm. So I, I always loved capturing the elation in that moment. And the same thing, like on the flip side, when they're coming out after a really good session, a lot of them are just, they seem like they're, there's a lot of gratitude. They're appreciative. It, it was, you know, they had a great session. Oftentimes they'll get to their car, they'll turn around, they'll like watch a couple more sets before they leave. So I, I just really appreciated kind of the emotion of that moment, like entering and leaving the water. So that was what I built my first collection around. And Dee's hosted a space on it. I actually sold out all 50 at 0.5 ETH in three minutes, which was mind blowing for me. Incredible. Um, and that, yeah, that collection's done like almost 150 ETH on secondaries. So that was really, really cool. And then I got on a super rare and I sold, I think 10 on super rare to all, all different, 10 different people. So that it's been really cool kind of following my own individualistic journey. And then and for people that are listening that don't know what super rare is, super rare is a platform where you you sell a one of one. It's the, the only edition. Right. Yeah. So all one of ones to art collectors at, at typically a little bit higher of a price point because it, it is challenging to get on that platform. It's like the oldest legacy platform. A lot of the early OG kind of crypto artists are all on super rare. So that was a big step for me to get on to the platform and, and sell work on there. So that's amazing. That was kind of a, yeah, congratulations. Yeah. What's the most expensive you, thing yeah. you sold? You know? Um, I think my last, my last five have been like nine, 10, 12, eight, nine. So like in the eight, eight to 12 ish range. That's incredible, uh, man. Yeah. That's really, that's, that's successful for uh, a digital photographer in the NFT space. I would, I would say that, but yeah, that puts you at the top tier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I always don't like um, like rankings or, or comparing myself to others. Cause I just feel like everyone is on such a different journey. Right. I mean, like we're all building different things. We're all like taking time off sometimes to go create and then other people are selling better for that month. So like a ranking isn't even really comparable because everyone's just kind of out there doing their own thing, creating on their own terms and selling like for when sure. it makes sense for them. So for sure, it's not like a sports season where everyone starts this day and they all play the same amount of games and you can compare their stats at the end on like a level playing field. I just feel like everyone, some guys will go out like Kath will go hike for two months. She's not going to be active on Twitter or, po or sell a piece for two months. Like should she, fall down in rankings and not be as seen as successful. Like not at all. Like it's just, everyone's on like a different kind of path in their own journey. It's funny. You mentioned Kath. I'm trying to get her on here and she's like one of my favorite artists. I just, uh, I just tried to get one of her pieces on that nifty drop, man. And I, I literally, uh, I literally missed by just a couple hundred bucks on my bed, man. So I'm kind of bummed on that. <laughs> she's, she's on Sony's, she's on Sony's global team with me too. So she's uh yeah, she's an awesome person. I've, Actually, I've talked with her for years, but we actually have never crossed paths yet. Strangely. Oh, wow. That's uh, so. that's wild. Do you buy NFTs? Yeah. Are you collecting anything? Is there anything that you're you're out there buying? What did you buy in the early days? What yeah, do you I buy mean, now? Yeah, I mean, the early days, I mean, I jumped into a lot of communities early just because I thought it was like a, a means to learning. So I got into Board Apes when there were three. Um, I held it till it was like 77 and I sold. Good for you. Uh, so that was probably like my, my best, I guess, hold over... A long period of time i got into doodles pretty early cool cats i got into moonbirds like the second day um got into admit one the second day um, are you in, so moon, I, are I you in moonbirds now yeah you are yeah i just have one yeah me too i i, yeah. I minted one i actually won oh, nice. i actually I won the raffle 
<laughs> yeah, and I got mine. Damn, I did, I did not win the raffle, but I bought one for like 16 But I got a really cool one. I got a 3D glasses, and he he's a really cool one. Oh, that's awesome, but man. But I guess my, my investment strategy is I really try to ask myself, is someone trying to innovate within a certain niche or category? And then I want to invest in kind of thought leaders who are trying to evolve certain categories. So Proof, Moonbirds, that is my kind of investment into like tech and like Silicon Valley, the web two to web three of like mm-hmm. companies coming in and trying to like evolve technology. That's my play in that realm. Admit one's kind of like my play on G money revolutionizing like fashion. That stuff he has good connections. At, yeah. I'm in there with you as well. I'm in the Admit one community as well. And um, they had a big drop yeah. today. Actually, did you meant today? Yep. You did. I haven't been to yet and I've been busy all day, but I'm going to hop in and kind of see what's going on with that. But I've been, I have been following the project. So I know he's well connected and is really trying to bring luxury goods to this space. So that's kind of, I guess my play and my investment in that sector. And then I thought doodles is kind of like my play in music and pop culture. I mean, they're signed with, you know, UMG and like all the, the music artists and that kind of stuff. So I think that they're a good play in that realm. So I don't really jump in or mint new projects. Um, I kind of want to see, sure if there's like a vibrant community or if they have like a good long-term business plan, like I think so much of a mint is about marketing and kind of like selling this dream, like euphoria vision. And I'd rather have someone like mint out, see how they they're kind of working with their community and like seeing how they are like after they've sold out. I don't want them to like just do all these like really kind of viral marketing things and sell out and then be like, okay, boom success. Like I, I don't view a success as a sellout by any means. I view a success like I think when you sell out, that's when the real work starts, right? Like you have all these people who just bought into a vision. Now you have to go execute on it. So that's for that reason alone, I don't really like typically minting projects. And I know there's a little bit of a financial setback by me investing later, but I, I guess I haven't really been burned too much by people who have like rugged me or disappeared on me, right? Because I, I do kind of vet them out for a little bit of time before I jump in. I think that's really smart advice. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of cash grabs in in the NFT space, and I think that scares a lot of people off from totally. from jumping in. Uh, have you ever thought about I think doing so, anything yeah. with like Nifty Gateways? I, I see a lot of artists like yourself that are pretty popular that sell a lot of stuff like one on one stuff, doing edition drops and things like that on Nifty. Have, have you ever thought about doing that kind of thing? Yeah, I talked to Nifty a little while ago. Um, they wanted me to participate in something else, <clears throat> um, but I've had a couple people who are big like curators on nifty uh reach out to maybe launch something with them but i just haven't found the right opportunity yet i mean i i launched an edition january 1st um right after kath had launched hers and i, I sold out 150 at 0.2 each so that did like 30 eth in a few minutes and then it's done another like almost 20 on secondary so that's been almost like 50 eth for a single photo but that was on my own terms i did a manifold custom contract i reached out to Literally almost all 150 people who minted it, I had talked with prior. Like I made sure I took care of every one of like my friends in the artist community who had always wanted like a surfer or, or they're like, well, I can never afford a super rare piece. I was like, well, hey, I'm going to come out with something at like 0.2. Like this is probably, I'm only going to do this once a year. I'm not going to be doing cash grabs with edition like every few months. Like I'm going to come out with one edition a year. And since I want to be very active on the building side, coming out with projects or really cool kind of initiatives also, I want to use my addition and people who are holding one of one work as I guess like a, a cool way to tap into further utility. So I, I don't think that art should ever have to have further utility, but as someone who is actively participating in a few different areas, I think what better way to kind of cue the people who are query the people who have invested in my work than to make sure that they're always taken care of when it comes to launching like collective strangers or our PFP or any of that stuff. I want to make sure that everyone who's holding my work 
um, we'll always have first dibs on anything I build in this space. That's a great, that's a great point. And I actually wanted to ask you about that. How do you maintain relationships with your collectors? Um, do you, and who buys your art? Like who, do, who, who are the people buying Eric Rubin art and how do you communicate with them? Yeah. How do you get? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very lucky to have great friendships with a lot of the people who have collected my one-on-one work. Um, I, I don't really treat them as like an investor, so to speak to I me. Mean, I truly just treat them as, as a peer or another person mm-hmm. who is invested in the industry that I believe in. I mean, that's kind of how I've always approached talking to other collectors or my peers is the way I see it is like a lot, a lot of people are afraid to talk to collectors because they think it comes across as like showing your work or they don't like entering the conversation, knowing that the end goal is to sell something. And I kind of have a much different mentality when it comes to that. I, I look back to my days working as an engineer and I had, you know, other engineers I worked with, I had managers, I had other people as part of my company, but we were all kind of working on this, this collaborative like project as a whole, we're working for this company. And I think one of the, the biggest frustrations for me when I moved on to be an individual artist was I lost coworkers. I lost that kind of team element working towards a common goal. And for me, I guess I had it a little bit when I'm on Instagram, you know, I got a big audience and I have other kind of influencers or, you know, creators on Instagram. Like, sure, those are, I guess, my peers, but oftentimes they live other places in the world and they're doing their own thing. And it's really hard to kind of build a relationship with them. So I thought for me, like since Web3 is so small and it really takes this mentality to kind of believe that this is the future when so you got people in your ear all the time talking about how it's a scam or it doesn't make sense. Like it it truly takes conviction in it to believe that this is like going to revolutionize a lot of sectors of the world. And so I, that's kind of how I view talking to other collectors or or people who are serious about this space. I don't view it as I'm here to sell collective strangers or sell my, my art to you. I kind of view it as I only have so many people here who believe in web three, just as much as I do. And I want to meet these people because they clearly had a lot of them are, you know, they had conviction in this way before I even knew what an NFT was. And I really want to just meet them and talk with them and learn why they had that conviction in it more than anything. And so I just see it as a way to meet other people in the industry who have the same belief that I do and, and feel just as strongly about it. I don't, I don't view it as I'm, I'm here to sell you a, a product. And if, you know, if you're not interested in it, then, you know, we, we're not going to talk anymore. You know, I, I don't see that at all. Uh, that's a great way to look at it. Do you have a team or do you work with other people? You've mentioned uh, like, you know, when you used to work as an engineer, you worked with a big team. Do you have like a team that you work with now or you do all of this pretty much solo? Yeah, I just do everything myself. It's pretty, pretty brutal. <laughs> I mean, when it, when it, if you're talking about like my, my photography business, I mean, my wife helps with everything. She um, travels with me a lot of the time, um, unless it's like a job for United where I'm in the airport for two days shooting with their team and it doesn't make sense for like the baby and my wife to come, then I'll be solo. But for the most part, my wife helps like advise on a lot of my jobs. She'll be a subject in a lot of my shoots for like hospitality stuff or travel jobs she's a good person to bounce ideas off of, or if I'm, you know, pitching something or putting together a proposal for a company, it's good to have her kind of look over things. Um, when it comes to shooting, editing, posting, maintaining social channels, that's all, that's all me. It's all, it's all just pure time and kind of involvement of of me doing that. I've never outsourced any of that to anybody else. I, I just feel a bit weird if those kind of personal things come from someone else on behalf of me. So I've always answered my own emails, manage my own social accounts, create everything myself, edit and posted everything myself. Um, when it comes to collective strangers, we have a, a team of a, a few people on that because we all kind of handle different roles and responsibilities. I, I think it'd be too hard to launch an NFT project 
as a one person show, yeah, I'd probably I, just get extremely burned. I, I was going <laughs> to ask you, I really wanted to get, I want to dig into collective strangers and have you kind of just tell us about that. I, you know, I'm a holder of yeah. collective strangers. I'm in your discord. I, um, I participated in the photo, um, you know, the photo submission contest and, um, yeah, yeah, man. I, I, tell us about that. It's a really amazing, cool project. Yeah. I, I guess for me, there's, there's two parts to it. The, the first is I, I felt like my first year in NFTs and web three, I was very focused on individualistic goals. Right. So I was, I wanted to learn, I wanted to meet people. I wanted to establish myself as an artist. I wanted to sell my work. Um, and I checked a lot of those boxes, but I kind of got to the, I guess the process, or I got to the point in time where I realized that all these are very individualistic goals that aren't really scaling the industry that much at all. I don't see how selling my work to a single collector and, and doing that five or 10 times a year is going to help Web3 grow to 5, 10, 100x what it is now. And so as someone who is really early to it, who wants to see it grow and evolve and wants all the brands that I work with, like Sony and United and all these companies to to bring opportunities to other creators and artists and people into this ecosystem, I feel like it's part of my responsibility to do what I can to educate people to help bring more artists into this space, to help collectors understand how to participate as well. So I think that was kind of the first gravitation I had towards potentially building something outside of my own art journey in this space. And then I guess in analyzing the macro of art in Web3, I, I was a little bit frustrated because I thought that when you look at the platforms, projects, and DAOs that are currently on the market, you got Super Rare, which requires in interview to get onto you got foundation which up until recently was you need an invitation to get on like right. maker's place these platforms are all invitation only um on OpenSea, of course you can anyone can mint something but good luck like having serious collectors come find your work organically on OpenSea. like there's just it's way too much stuff on there there's like very t little to no discoverability on that platform it's like finding a needle on a haystack <clears throat> totally yeah i mean unless you get featured or get into some sort of a preferred standing with them, like good luck. Right. So then I go to the DAOs, like they require a curation board to choose your art to be shown. It's it's more of like a traditional, almost like gallery type of an experience. And so I thought back to a lot of the things that I relied on that helped me find this journey and become a photographer. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that Instagram in its first three or four years of infancy was a mobile only platform. There was really no barrier to entry and there was also no competition, right? I mean, like there, it wasn't about necessarily who could take the best photo. And I wasn't intimidated thinking like, oh my gosh, there's all these high-end artists on here who are getting all these jobs and putting out the best art in the world. Like I don't belong here. No, everyone was posting mobile work with like little filters. And it was very easy for anyone to feel like they had a home here to meet other creatives, to participate, to share work, um, and to go find that path, like whatever, whatever it may be. And so for someone like me who was starting off and had no art background, I think that that was vital to me kind of able to get, to get to the level where I'm at now, right? Like I had, I was able to take advantage of all those things that I just talked about. And when I look at web three right now, I, I don't think those same things exist in this ecosystem, right? I think that everything that is built now for the most part is heavily skewed towards the top 0.1% of artists and art in the world. I think everyone is, is aiming to build for the best and to showcase the best art in the world. And, and part of that is just because we're so early, right? So I think if you're going to launch a platform, or a DAO, um, you obviously want to go and try to get big names and big art and try to, you know, lead with the, the wow factor. Of course, I, I totally understand that. But at the same time, 
I feel like long-term, if we truly want to see art and Web3 and all this stuff grow, we need to focus on all levels of the pyramid, not just the top 0.1%. Someone needs to be really focused on the foundation. And, and what does that mean? It means building tools and resources and opportunities for everyone to participate, whether they're the top photographer in the world or whether they're someone who travels two times a year and just wants, just takes photos on their cell phone and wants to share those. And they don't have any aspirations to be a professional whatsoever. So I feel like that there, there wasn't really a good solution for that type of a person in this ecosystem. And that kind of scared me, right? Like I, I think there needs to be solutions for everyone so that the people at the foundation can get to the next level. And if they're interested in, and motivated and driven, they can get to the next level. And the, that pyramid kind of keeps funneling upstream, so to speak. So I said, like enough people are focused on the, the 0.1%. I'm going to focus on the other 99.9% of people here who have <laughs> a camera in their hand right every day of the year. And I'm going to build solutions for them to have fun, to connect with others, to learn how to get better at photography if they want, or maybe to just share cool photos of a trip that they take with their family or friends if they want. Like I'm going to build solutions for all those people out here to have fun doing those things. So that's kind of, I guess, like the the mission statement behind our project mm-hmm. um, in the same way that Instagram is a media sharing platform, but they're not people don't see them as a tool for a professional photographer, right? Like anybody can be on Instagram and feel comfortable sharing photos. I think that's kind of some of the market share that we want to try to capture as well. Mm-hmm. We, we of course want to build solutions for the top photographers and for photographers who are serious to improve and get lessons and get to the next level. But we also just want to innovate within the media sharing side of web three and be known as the home for, for pretty much all media and photography that's being shared. That's, that's amazing. So when you created uh, collective strangers, did you work with the, t- you said you worked with some other people, you, you kind of developed a team and, yeah. So, yeah. So the main, the main guy on the project, Noah, who was, he was day one to proof collective. Um, he's early to doodles. His dad was a photographer and he, he lives in LA. He is kind of just like a hobbyist, like takes some photos for fun, but has no aspirations to be a professional or anything. But he was frustrated as well that for someone like him, like he didn't really know how to share photography and, and mint it and, and he didn't know how to collect it either. So he was really curious on how to build tools and resources for kind of just the more passive hobbyists. And for all the reasons I just described, I'm really interested as someone who has lived every stage from, you know, just picking up a mobile camera and sharing San Diego after work, never thinking I would be a photographer to someone who is now 10 years into my career working with a lot of the biggest brands in the world. I'm able to look back and, and understand what was beneficial for me at each level and what I really needed and try to build solutions to help that person along each step of the journey. So he was the person I I started the project with. It was just me and him um, kind of trying to figure out how we could innovate in the photography sector. What was the mechanics of the project? So you minted this token and it gave you you an instant camera. I got a gold one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So so the the mechanics was to really build, I guess, he learned a lot from Proof Ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I I really appreciated how they did things as well, where they kind of had a core close-knit community of like 1,000 holders. And then they they had kind of further community growth beyond that with Moonbirds and now with Oddities and that kind of stuff. But I, I think that was kind of a similar um, company, I guess, structure that we wanted to follow where we have like the core 1000 member community, which we are focusing on bringing a lot of like the main solutions or partnerships or contests or collaborations or lessons will all be focused around photography with that core. And then with the PFP, that's going to be a way to kind of grow the community and allow 
more people to participate in like some of the photography innovation that we're coming out with. Yeah. Who got your, who got the Eric Rubens photo in the photo contest? Do you know who got I it? I actually meant to the, I meant to the couple cause we had, um, we had, I think eight or nine passes that we withheld in our treasury. And oh, I was wow. like, Oh, I have a couple of photos. Right on. So I think a couple people got it. Someone didn't know they got mine and, and just sold it for like 0. 0.07 or something. So oh, no. someone got a good deal. On <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I would have liked to get that. I got one. I, yeah, I got I got one, and uh, honestly, I was a little disappointed with mine. To be to be perfectly, honest. I was I was too. Mine I, was a really low effort us- picture somebody took of the ocean. You know, it was just like a picture of the ocean. Yeah. Well, I got a I got a marijuana plant. Oh, so and it was it was it was a blurry one too. So I for anyone who thinks that we rigged, um, you know, who got what photo, I can assure you that it was completely randomized because I got. <laughs> A blurry photo of a, of a weed plant that I probably had no interest in. <laughs> My photo that I took was a was an iPhone photo. I was on a safari in Africa in the Serengeti, and I had an elephant in my rearview oh, mirror, okay. and I just took a picture of the rearview mirror with the elephant in it, which was a really cool picture to so me. Cool. And uh, and I I noticed uh, that Michael Block got mine. You know, Michael Block, oh, the photographer. Awesome. Yeah, photographer. he got mine. And I, I tried to reach out to him on Twitter to tell him, like, you know, he was lucky to get my photo, but he didn't answer me back. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I mean, that's like, it, it was part of, the, so part of this was there, there was a couple initiatives and like objectives we had with this first community mint. The first one was getting hundreds of people minting and collecting their first photos, which we did. I mean, if you look at a lot of the people who participated, like major collectors, like D's, uh, NorCal guy, Batsup Yum, um, Keyboard Monkey, all these guys, who have, of course, serious collectors in this space, they had never shared or minted photos before. And we got them all to submit a mobile photo. Like that's incredibly cool to me that they were, after being so serious on the collecting side, finally able to share something that's about, you know, them as a person. And so we, our goal originally was 300 to 400 people participating out of the 1000 pass holders. And we ended up getting like 630 or 640. So we had way better participation especially when you look at this market, you know, it's a bit of a bear market right now and people are a little burned out, engagements down. We were trying to be very realistic with our expectations, but it was just incredibly inspiring to see so many people eager to participate. And the other element of that was, I mean, it was truly a social experiment, right? Sure. I mean, if you give someone a prompt to share a photo that represents them as a person, of course, when you have 650 people do that, some people are going to put in a lot of effort. Some people don't really care. They're just going to take a photo of like, someone took a photo of like their t-shirt in the mirror. It's completely blurry. And, and the person who got that was really upset. And I was like, I'm sorry, but it's like, it's not, it's not on me to go through the collection and say what photos are good enough. Um, that's That wasn't the point of this, right? Like there's enough curated collections out there where, you know, people are, are saying what work is accepted and what work isn't. And if someone wants to submit a blurry photo that's low effort, like, that's a representation of them, you know, and I'm not going to be the one who says that's not good enough. Like it's, we, we had to kind of truly take a decentralized approach to where if it's not illegal, um, it's going to be fair game. It's, it's on you as a person to decide what you want to contribute. What are you creating now? What are you working on? Do you have any projects going on right now that you're involved in? Yeah. I mean, we're just working on the PFP. So we have an incredible artist. So I actually met him on a four seasons job in Hawaii. Um, so they, he's a four seasons resident artist in Oahu. He has a gallery. He does, um, Patagonia's clothes, Hurley's clothes, designs, world surf league posters, June shine cans. I don't know if you know the kombucha, um, but he does all those cans. He's, he's just such a cool artist who has this like vintage retro Hawaiian travel style. And when I saw his work, I was obsessed with it. I have his work hanging in my house. Um, so I, I had his art before I had launched anything in NFTs, right? I met him a couple of years ago 
And so when PFPs were kind of all the rage and we were deciding whether or not we wanted to do one for our creative community, I thought what better way to kind of understand what it would be like to build a PFP in this space than to do so by bringing in an artist who I love who wasn't currently involved in NFTs and try to think of, like, I think his work is so different than anything that has been done so far. I don't know if you've seen the previews that we've been sharing, but he's he's so detail-oriented with his line work and crafting everything by hand. Like, he, he did 389 individual layers for the PFP, all done by hand with multiple iterations. It's truly taken us, like, five-plus months of him drawing these out one by one. Um, so that's really been our focus is... We don't want to rush it out the door. I, I know a lot of people in this space are extremely impatient. They're like, when is the PFP dropping? When is the PFP dropping? I'm like, if you, you only got one chance to release things, right? Like you got one opportunity to, to do things right. And if you rush them out the door, if you don't put in maximum effort, you, you know, you're, you're going to fail. And there's, there's nothing worse than spending an incredible amount of time being detail oriented, focusing on, you know, putting out the best product you can and then rushing the last five or 10% of it out the door and not putting in that same due diligence. So we're going to focus really heavily on networking with, you know, other communities, you know, really sharing his story, his work, um, do everything we can to really build up the hype and awareness of this project before we drop it. Because I truly think it's a special drop. That's so much more than a PFP. And I just want to make sure that we're putting in the time, energy, and effort that it deserves. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. I love being a part of the Collective Strangers Discord community. I'll, I'll tell you, I, uh, I I don't post a lot in Discord, but I lurk. I'm a lurker. I'm a, I'm in there, and I will say, <laughs> I will say, like uh, your 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 Discord's vibing, man. You got a great group of people in there, and a lot of really yeah, smart, the, the share- talented, interesting, funny people. So the share your work tab is blows my mind. I mean, there's, there's people sharing their work daily that are just, it's, it's really inspiring. And I think that that's, that's what I really want to be known as a home for. Like I want our community to be very valuable and I I don't always define value in purely financial terms, right? I think we're very, we're very um, conditioned in web three to looking at traditional metrics like floor price and volume and how many holder unique holders there are. And there's all these metrics that we've been told are, whether or not a project is successful or not. And I really want to challenge that with our project. Like our project was 0.2 to mint when ETH was $1,000. So it was $200. We instantly gave you a photography course. Our photo you know, community collection was free. And that that was an incredible way to build. We, we built 650 new relationships in this space that didn't exist prior. Um, we're going to have tons of cool things coming out as well. But just being able to have a really close knit community where if you need a portfolio review, if you're traveling somewhere and want to get feedback from someone else who maybe lives in that area, like I want to provide value in other ways that your mind maybe isn't conditionally trained to thinking. Like I I know personally, if I build a relationship with an artist or with a collector, if I meet someone from another part of the world that inspires me to go travel there and I have this impactful trip that I never forget the rest of my life, like those are all valuable things that should kind of factor into why you join communities or projects. So I think t- too many people are, are just kind of hung up on where's the floor at, where's the floor at versus like really just dive in and, and get all you can out of the community. Cause I truly think we built something special in there with the level of artists and collectors and art appreciators and world travelers. And you can learn a lot by spending some time there. 
Eric, you're such a smart and interesting guy. I have so many questions I'd like to ask you, but we're getting close to the top of the hour. And I, I before I get before I lose you, I really want to go down this rabbit hole with you, like about travel, man. Like you've, uh, yeah, you've gotten to just travel to some of the most exotic places in the world. I'm a traveler myself. I've traveled all over the world. Um, what? what how, yeah. How's that going for you? Can you talk about traveling? And um, I saw on Instagram maybe a post where you, you, your kid, your baby's going with you, and your wife, all these places. Your baby's been to so many countries. Talk about that, son. Yeah. Man. I, I would avoid <clears throat> travel junkie to travel junkie. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a big testament to working with United. I mean, it's it's pretty much a dream client for me because the way I got that job was they reached out to me when I had a couple of viral pictures from Cape Town. I've been to. South Africa four times. It's probably my favorite place in the world. It's probably my favorite place because I think when you go on a trip, you're oftentimes traveling to a destination because it, it checks certain boxes for a theme, right? You go to Hawaii for the beaches and the island vibes. You go to BAM for Canada for the mountains. You go to Switzerland for the mountains, like I said. Um, every destination kind of has like a theme to it. Whereas I feel like South Africa, it's you got the beaches of Cape Town. Behind there, you got incredible mountains. You got wine country in French, Stellenbosch, and Paul that I think is some of the, the most incredible wine country in the world. And then you got the whole experience of going on safari, which if I have to point to one experience in life that I think truly changed me or that is unlike anything else, I would say go on safari. I, I mean, I heard you say that you know your contribution was from safari. So you probably know as well. I just think that seeing animals in their natural environment like that is something you can't get in North America. Um, and so the first time I saw that, I was, I was just truly blown away. Like, I, I don't know how to describe it. It was just a feeling that I'd never, never really had before not seeing them in the zoo. So I, I think that when I get my daughter to start traveling more, and I, I think back to some of the more impactful trips that I've had in my life, I, I point right to experiences like that. And I'm just like, how do I get her to experience that earlier in life? Like I didn't go on safari until I was 20, 27, 28. I was like, how, how cool would it be if I went on safari when I was five or six and saw animals like that? Like it could have changed the way that I saw the world. So I'm trying to bring those experiences to her at like a younger point in life. I was 48 years old when I first went to Africa and I uh, went to Tanzania. I did a couple of weeks in the Serengeti and uh, what an incredible trip, you know, I mean, hard, you know, those trips are, are hard to do. It's exhausting, but man, just yeah. eye opening, life changing, oh, mind blowing, you know, those are all words that yeah. I would describe it. And then I, uh, after, after the safari, I went to Uganda and I hiked up into the impenetrable forest and did the gorillas, which was wow. just, you know, honestly, like I've heard incredible top, top memories, you know, of my lifetime. Yeah. The gorilla tracking is on my bucket list. I've heard great things about that, but I, I think, yeah. So to fast forward, like United reached out for me to write an article, first timer's guide to Cape town. And for me, I was like, Oh my gosh, I finally have an in with United. So I, I basically right after that ended, I was like, what else can I help on? I, I go to all of these destinations that you service. Maybe we can start working together. So we kind of entered this relationship where they would fly my wife and I somewhere and I would give them five or 10 photos of that destination. So we had this kind of trade basis going for about a year, a year and a half. And we were thinking about ways we could work together on a, on a deeper, like more long-term basis. And then COVID hit and they said, we have no budget demands down 97%. And so instead of saying, well, well, okay, well, write me back when you have budget. I instead said, no worries. Like I'll help you out the entire year for free. I know United's not going anywhere long-term on five, 10, 20 years. I'll help you guys out for nothing. So I shot all these things you would never think I would take pictures of. People cleaning seats, a guy holding the HEPA filter that's on in every airport in the entire world that United goes to. So all these photos that you probably would never know that I took, I took all these cleaning photos and I helped them when they really needed it. And right after 
that like kind of the, the pandemic started winding down a little bit. They gave me my biggest contract ever. And, and now we kind of renewed that this year and looks like we're going to do it next year too. So I'm kind of their guy now for launching routes. I'll go on a new route and give them a big package to launch with. Um, I help them out with all their airport content. And then my wife and I have a great relationship where we can fly like anywhere in the world, business class free, unlimited. <laughs> oh so, my God, I'm so jealous. Some, That's yeah. a dream job, man. I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. I negotiated that in. So that was, that's pretty awesome. So it's, but yeah, I, I do a lot for them and I always try to over deliver and they take care of me too. So it's, it's been a great relationship and it's, it's been very rewarding to kind of get a look into aviation and kind of the travel industry. Yeah, that's, a, that's insane. Where can I find Eric Rubin's art? Where would I look? How do I, what's the best way to get in touch with you, to find your artworks, to see what you're creating and to follow you? Yeah. If you just want a little like behind the scenes look of my life, you can always find me on Instagram or Twitter at erubes1. That's kind of just um, raw and unfiltered look at my life. Instagram's more just kind of like my day-to-day travels and my art. Twitter, I really try to dive into kind of my thoughts and like business ideas and things that have helped me just the way that I see the world. So I try to get a little more conversational on Twitter. And then, yeah, if you want to see my art, it's on SuperRare, superrare.com slash erubes1 is like my one of ones that I have listed or just join our Collective Strangers project. And that's really a, a community built project where we're trying to get people who love traveling or love sharing photos or want to get better. Um, it's, it's a great community and it's it's just starting. So it's a great time to get in if you're interested. Amazing. And I'll, I'll share links to all of that stuff in the show notes so people that are listening can just click and find it pretty easy. Can I ask you about royalties? Do you do royalties on your uh, NFT yeah. projects? And how do you, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? I'm just curious. I keep asking yeah, I, artists and everybody's got a different opinion. Yeah. I mean, I have royalties, I think built into 10% on, on, my art that I have out there. Um, Collective Strangers, I think we have 7.75% built in, but we have really cool things we want to do with that. Like with the community collection, um, we are putting in all the secondary royalties and we're going to spend 100% of it on buying art from the community. So we have a ton of artists who are coming out with additions or, or collections. And we were like, well, what better way? Because we didn't create this community collection, right? It's in the hands of the community that submitted all these photos. So it's not really fair for us to pocket all the secondary royalty. I thought it'd be really cool if we can kind of get, you know, two, three, four, five ETH on that and then go out and buy all this work and start to have a really cool gallery, a collective strangers gallery that's representative of the art that our community is coming out with. Oh, that's a, that's an awesome idea. Yeah. I mean, like Dean said his work sell for one ETH, his, uh, his mobile shop for bought it for one ETH. So <laughs> that, that had some royalties go towards buying some art. <laughs> that's so awesome, man. Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to say about your art or your vision of the future of art and the digital space and the web three space is there anything that i didn't ask you that you'd like to talk about uh no i mean i guess i would just end with um encouragement for anyone any artist out there any person who's participating and is, is maybe uncomfortable sharing their work i would just encourage you to get comfortable sharing your story i mean i think a lot of the time people think that their story is not good enough or not unique or not special enough so it's not worth being told and i just think that you never know who will relate to your story until you you know get comfortable sharing it so Although I haven't been through any crazy hardship like, you know, drift or I haven't undergone the pain of losing a twin like Justin, I think that my story is cool because I've gone from sports to engineering to following my heart into photography. And I think that that there's a lot of people who can relate to maybe leaving a traditional career to follow a passion, even though everyone around them told them not to do it. So I've, I've gotten really comfortable sharing that story and just becoming appreciative over who can maybe is at that same crossroads and just needs that extra push to maybe go follow their heart. So yeah, I always encourage people to tell your story. You never know who 
will connect with it or maybe find value in kind of hearing that. You're an inspiration, Eric. It's been my pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for taking an hour of your time to spend with me. I uh, have really enjoyed getting to know you and uh, thank you very much for, for coming me. on. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to another episode of The Ledge. It was a great chat with Eric Rubens today, and I will invite you all to follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore underscore Chris, or you can catch me on Instagram at ChrisHarper.eth. I look forward to seeing you all out on the ledge.